Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes Podcast. We've got an awesome show for you today. A little bit of a change of pace out of the typical sports conversation. We've got Ole Miss alum and rising musician Watson Turnipsey. You should check out all of his music at Watson, W-A-T-S-O-N, on Spotify, wherever you get your music. Awesome stuff. Really talented guy. Friend of mine from college who's doing a lot of different cool stuff. In addition to being a musician, he also farms in the Delta and is also an attorney who practices international law, which is currently he's currently doing some anti-terrorism litigation in Africa. Really sharp dude. Talked about his, uh, of course, what he's doing in Africa right now, but predominantly his music journey, how he kind of taught himself to play some instruments and uh, how his career has grown into what it is today. I'd highly encourage you to check him out, but a uh, fascinating guy. I really enjoyed chopping it up with an old friend and I think you'll enjoy it as well. So buckle up before we get to that though, wanted to remind you podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Fix. Who is Skybox Sports Fix? Well, glad you asked that the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox matrix interval and advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Here's some stats for you. Skybox went 65 and 43, up 50 units last week in college basketball. Did you do that? Probably not. They're free plays just from following them on Twitter. Eight and two last week, which is absolutely ridiculous. They clean it up this time of year in college basketball. you got the NFL playoffs going. If you're into wagering, you're tired of losing money to your bookie. Skybox is the only option to profit in the long run. Their algorithm, as I've told you guys time and time again, absolutely murders it when it comes to college basketball. They are well over 60% year after year. That is their bread and butter. You need to cash in now while you can. They're crushing it in the NFL. They've got NASCAR coming up. You had Skybox Mark, who's coming on the pod here soon, to explain how he ended up plus 200 units in NASCAR last year and all kinds of other great stuff. All you have to do is go online, skyboxsportspicks.com, find a picks package. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. I'd recommend just signing up for the year-long all-access pass. You can do one sport, multiple sports, whatever. Buy it. They'll send you a nice color-coded spreadsheet that's got the picks by units, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were five minutes before. And if you use the promo code RIPPY, that's R-I-P-P-E-E, that'll get you 20% off any purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Ride subscriber or listener. You get a free newsletter from me a couple times a week, all these podcasts, and discounted meets. Just go in there, show and proof of subscription, and you get three Six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation that you're getting for 20 bucks. Boom. That's you and the buddies. Just throw in three steaks on the grill. Then go find all your own favorites there. They got all kinds of delicious sausages, fresh seafood, delicious sides. It's the best butcher shop in the world. It's the crown jewel of Oxford. Got to see my man Greg over the weekend. He wants to make your grilling experience great. Check them out. If you're in Oxford and you don't go by LB's, you're missing out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here is Ole Miss alum and musician Watson Turnipseed. All right, we now welcome on an old pal of mine, multi-talented man. I don't even know where to start. He is a musician. He is an attorney. Watson Turnipseed, you can check him out. I am Watson Music. What's up, my man? How are you? This might be the first international podcast we've done. I once had an NFL draft guy uh, call in from Canada, but uh, you were in Kenya, in Africa, 
What's up? How you doing? It's uh, it, this is quite the time change. Rippy Wright is just going international these days. How are you, man? <laughs> man, I'm so good, Brian Scott. I really appreciate you bringing me on. Um, it's a beautiful day in Nairobi, Kenya. It's uh, it's about what time is it? Six fifteen here. I'm nine hours ahead of you. Um, we're over here actually working on an anti-terrorism case. Um, from when Al Qaeda attacked the United States for the first time. Bin Laden planned a simultaneous bombing of the U.S. embassies in Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And um, here in Nairobi, it killed like almost 300 people and injured thousands. And then the one in Dar killed more people but injured less. And we're suing Iran and Sudan for being state sponsors of terrorism because they helped Bin Laden facilitate the attack by um, training the soldiers using their uh, apparatuses of the state, like their national banks, to transfer the funds to train these guys and get the bombs built. And um, the way it works is um, Iran and Sudan don't um, accept the jurisdiction of American courts. And so you go and get a default judgment against them in the D.C. Circuit Court. And then we do all these depositions and uh, take all the testimony of all the injured um, U.S. embassy employees and U.S. contractors and submit that to a special master in D.C., and they compile it all and determine how much compensation they get. And then we get the money through the State Department and the Treasury and give it to these people in Kenya, and it absolutely changes their lives forever. Um, so it's it's easily the sexiest field of law that I do, this anti-terrorism stuff. Um, so I'm happy to be here, and it, it's just it's excellent to hear these people's stories. It's really humbling, and uh, it's it's good work. That's a that's incredible stuff, man. And that's you know I reached out because we'll get to your uh, musical career in a minute, which is kind of why I reached out. But then I kind of started looking into your law background a bit. So kind of giving the people some background. You're a good old Delta boy. You can't take the Delta out of the kid. You got the camo hat. You got the big buck on the side. Even in Delta Council, you can't, you can't take the Delta out of the man. But so you you go to Ole Miss, you graduate from Ole Miss Law School. That's actually what I was going to ask next is you just very eloquently outline kind of what you're doing. How do you get into that? How did you take me from like the time you left Ole Miss? Obviously, you take the bar and all that. How did you get into what you're doing right now? Well, I'll start even earlier. So, okay. um, you know, from the Delta, I went to Pillow Academy, um, thought I wanted to play football in college. Uh, I was committed to go play at Princeton uh really wanted to thought thought that was going to be my path and um while on my senior Europe trip hanging out and traveling I just realized man I don't want to play college football in front of 200 people in New Jersey you know I've got both in my knees I'm healthy and uh last second in about July or August applied to Ole Miss and got into the honors college there and um took my talents to the University of Mississippi and then while there, I ran into two guys from Crystal Springs, Mississippi, that um, were at Alpine Camp for Boys with me, Will Smith and Sam Stevens. Oh, yeah. And while we were young, they were already playing guitar. You were probably in um, Stockard with them and heard them ripping guitar late at night. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and so I lied to Will and Sam and, and told them I could play the drums. And I'd never played the drums in my life. And um, they brought the drums up from Crystal Springs, and we set them up at my hunting camp in Tallahatchie County and uh, they, they had to put the drums together for me and I lied to them and told them, um, y'all gonna have to go smoke about two packs of cigarettes each until I figure these fuckers out. And <laughs> we had our first show a week later at the corner bar. I think you were probably there. Um, I, I definitely was, I remember this. 
And a guy from the corner called and he said, so what's y'all's band name? And everybody looks at me and I'm from the Delta and they're from Crystal Springs. So we called it Delta Springs. And, you know, for three years in college, we played a ton of shows all around Ole Miss and across the South. And I played drums. And by the end of those three or four years, I was finally a decent drummer. And then um, when I graduated from Ole Miss, um, Will and Sam weren't doing a damn thing and I wasn't going to wait on them and, you know, drive a cotton picker for the rest of my life. So I reached out to everyone I knew in cool cities to try to get a job doing something. And my friend Jersey, um, who believe it or not is from New Jersey, his dad (laughs) owned a uh, construction company in, uh, that did a lot of jobs on top of skyscrapers in Manhattan, working on cooling towers. And I thought that was the coolest shit I'd ever seen being, you know, 600 feet up in the air in the middle of Manhattan. So I took that job. I got paid $17 an hour and I did it for about a year and a half. And I was so broke, uh, Rippy, that if I took a girl on a date when I lived in New York, the date would consist of a long walk. And if she was lucky, she'd get a crepe. And while I was up there, William Dawson and I joined the share house in the Hamptons in Amagansett. And we were with all these kids that were like junior analysts at big investment banks. And they were making like 120 grand out of college. And they were getting all the girls. And I was like, this is just fucked up. I got to do something and find a way to make enough money to take these girls out. And my grandfather, Frank Mitchell, called me. He said, well, Watsy, don't you think it's time to get a law school? And I said, yes, sir. And so he called uh Chancellor Kayat, and they got me in touch with the admissions, and that was in, like, August. Luckily, I had a, a good LSAT score and got in and uh, came back to Ole Miss for um, two and a half years and started law school, and while in law school, you know, I was hardly there um, because I was playing music and, you know, hunting and doing all kinds of things, and I got the opportunity to go to Cambridge, England to study international law, and while over there, I had super good professors and I just became extremely interested in international law in general and knew that's what I wanted to do. I just didn't have a damn clue how to do it. And while I was over there, I was getting a shave uh, at a barber shop, a wet shave. And I guess I looked stoned or kind of out of it or something. And the guy, uh, the barber, he looked at me, he said, are you a musician? And I said, well, I used to be. And he said, well, my buddy Jack has a studio in Grandchester, and if he likes your stuff, he'll record you. And, you know, prior to that, my family's house had burned down, and so I lost my drums and my piano. And when I was living in New York, I bought a guitar and taught myself how to play guitar and wrote three songs. And I went out to Grandchester, and I played in my song Demon, which is about Truett Primos, who uh, died on October the 7th, 2017. And um, Jack, the guy in the studio, he said, well, fucking hell. And we started recording right then. And um, I recorded the guitar and the vocals and the drums. And I sent those tracks back to Will Smith and Patrick Mink and Oxford. And they put the bass and the lead guitar on it. And we finished that record, Simple Syrup, in the that summer of 19 after three sessions. And I released it while I was still over in Europe. And I was traveling all around between the, you know, the UK, Portugal, France, Spain. And everywhere I went, I would show everybody I met this record. And I think what happened is Spotify saw that it was getting all these hits from Western Europe and then also in Mississippi and New York and my friends all over. And so they put it on one of their Spotify playlists. And Sophia, one of the songs on that record, went from like 3,000 plays to 30,000 plays overnight. And uh, now today that song's got like a million streams. And because of the success of that, 
that's how I've been able to book all of these festivals and shows and opportunities because it looks like my numbers and stats are so good when really I'm just a little Delta boy kind of figuring it out on the go. And then I went back to law school, played my first solo show. We didn't know what to name the band. I was either going to name it Seed because my last name's Turnip Seed or Watson. And we went with Watson and I never realized how narcissistic and arrogant that was at the moment. Cause you know, these one name bands, you got Beyonce, Madonna, Watson. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that's how it started. That first record was extremely successful. And that's when I knew, you know, maybe I do have a talent to do this thing. And uh, I hit the ground running with it and haven't stopped since. And that kind of leads us to today. I just finished recording my uh, fourth project. This will be my first ever full-length project. It's got eight tracks on it. It's called Swamp Pop Pop. And since I moved to New Orleans after law school, um, I've been extremely blessed to get surrounded with some of the most incredibly talented musicians I've ever met in New Orleans, especially these brass players, like Aurelian Barnes, who's our age and who's already Grammy-nominated. And... Um, and having the brass in the band, when I first played a live show with the really and playing trumpet, I was like, holy shit, I will never play without a brass section ever again. And in this record, I've been really lucky, recorded two tracks in Nashville at Moxie Studios, recorded three tracks out in Los Angeles at East Los Love Studios with the members of Hey Rocco that are kind of my soul brothers and have had a lot to do with my musical growth. And then I completed it at Trombone Shorty Studio in New Orleans called Buck Jump Studio, produced by my good friend, Pauly Shane. And this record is easily um, the most complex, the most produced, the most, you know, well-written. You know, I spent two years on this as opposed to three days like I did most of the other records. And um, I'm just thrilled about this release coming out. And then moving forward, you know, got a lot of festivals lined up and a lot of shows between February the 14th when it comes out. And I'm also a farmer. Um, last year, I farmed my first crop of soybeans in Tallahatchie County. So I got to do all my touring between February and April the 20th when I got to put those seeds in the ground. Which is crazy. And like, I imagine like people out there listening go, wow, that's a lot to juggle. And so like on the on the law side of it, how you get to Kenya, when you graduated law school and you're kind of figuring out, you know, you mentioned you got in, you infatuated the international law. How do you get involved in something where when it happened, like the original thing that you outlined earlier, you were nowhere close to a lawyer. I'm sure you were, I don't know exactly the time, but we were kids, right? How did you get to yeah. where you are today? Because as you're balancing the music career, obviously you're doing the uh, attorney side of things, you know, as well simultaneously. And I was going to ask you before I kind of looked in your background a little more of like, like, who do you work for? Are they cool? Like, how do you balance the schedule? But you basically kind of started your own like LLC, right? You're an independent attorney. How do you latch, like take me through that and then how you latched on to this in Kenya and how you actually got work doing this? Well, in law school, I had a professor named John Zarnetsky. And when I was growing up, he was married to the Episcopal priest in Sumner, Mississippi, which is a town of about 235 people. So it's tiny. So I've known him my whole life and he's an incredible professor and he's a huge Catholic and he represents the Holy See, which is the Vatican at the United Nations. And wow. I begged him and begged him to take me up there with him. And finally, he let me be his assistant. We did a week at the United Nations at the Sixth General Assembly. And that was kind of my first shot in the in the playing field of international law at a, at a real level. And um, that's all I had on my resume as far as international law. And then I graduated law school in two and a half years. I did my last semester on Zoom driving a combine for the uh, Wagner's farm. 
And when I graduated, I didn't know if I wanted to move back to New York or if I wanted to move to Sumner and start farming and practicing law. And my girlfriend got a job in New Orleans um, as a travel agent. And I was like, fuck it, move down there. But I'd passed the Mississippi bar, but I hadn't passed the Louisiana bar, which is Napoleonic code, which is entirely different. And so it was extremely hard to get a job without a Louisiana license and uh, I took the Louisiana bar in July of 21 and I passed that one as well. And then I started working for this defense firm called Rabelais Unland. And we did primarily primary insurance defense and workers comp defense. And they wanted me to bill like between 180 hours to 200 hours a month, which if you know me, that is just absolutely soul sucking to have to push that much paper and be sitting at that desk doing that, not being able to travel, not being able to play music, not being able to rip around. And so after seven months of that, I felt like I'd gotten the training that I needed. I had good supervision and I just, you know, I had too much smoke for that role. And so um, against everyone's advice, I left them and started my own law firm, S. Watson Turner, Seed Attorney at Law LLC. And this other attorney, Gibby Andrew, who's a big deal in the New Orleans community and has made a ton of money um, on a variety of lawsuits. And um, he took me under his wing and buys me lunch every day and his free advice. And I rented an office in his same building, which is on Barone Street in New Orleans. And it's kind of a conglomerate of everyone's their own solo practitioner. But no one did workers' compensation law. And so all these attorneys would just start funneling me all these workers' comp cases and, you know, now I'm, it'll be the year anniversary next month of me having my own firm. And I've got over 40 cases and I've got five trials lined up for this year. But my friend Brady Eves, um, his father is John Arthur Eves Jr., yeah. who's the son of John Arthur Eves Sr., who ran for governor of Mississippi in the 70s. And um, he was a real prolific uh, lawyer. And after that bombing in 1998, John Arthur Sr. teamed up with a bunch of law firms that do primarily multi-district litigation. And they came over to Kenya and started taking all these depositions and getting these cases together. And they got their first judgment in 2017 um, for hundreds of millions of dollars for these um, uh, Kenyan uh, citizens and American embassy employees. And then since then, they've expanded the suit, which what we're working on now, we're representing all of their family members for the emotional distress they suffered as a part of the bombing. And the Eves Law Firm needed more boots on the ground to come over here because, you know, we've got thousands of clients and to knock out as many depositions as possible. And Brady reached out to me. He said, hey, man, uh, you want to come with me to Kenya and do depositions? And I said, where do I sign and what door do I walk out of? And so we came over here in June for three weeks and did Kenya and Tanzania. And now we're back here in January doing the exact same thing. And that's how I got brought on. That's wild. And I imagine it's funny. So my mom is an attorney and my dad works in banking. And all of a sudden I find myself two years out of school writing about sports, which those two don't, those two professions don't really job. And so I'm trying to figure out, I was like, how does this work genetically? Like how did my brain, like, how did this, how did I become this from these two people? But then the further and further I got into it, you know, we're doing this podcast here, but most of my, uh, background I'd say is in writing and as much as I love the sports angle of it I kind of had a knack for the more longer form human interest stuff and the further I got into it and the more and more I learned about kind of what my mom does as well is like they're not actually that dissimilar particularly if it's something you're interested in you mentioned that original law firm where they're asking to bill 180 200 hours a week that's really going to cramp your style you mentioned pushing a lot of paper but for something like this, something that's very cool, a very interesting topic that obviously piques your interest, I imagine it's a hell of a lot more fun, one, 
But the process is kind of similar, right? You're trying to learn everything about it that you can, whether it's through depositions or research and all that. And I imagine if you're motivated to do it, that actually makes the job a hell of a lot easier. You're exactly right. I mean, I wake up excited to do this work um, and, you know, to help these people. And so that really pushes you to, you know, push the envelope and work your ass off way more than you would if you were doing something where you were miserable just to make a paycheck. And so that, that means a lot. And then, having my own firm now I'm in control of all my own time and like being able to balance when I want to do what I want to do. Um, that is like the greatest gift of all of it, you know, not having uh, any set desk hours and just being in complete control. And if you told me I'd be 28 years old and I'd be about to release my first full length record and practice in international law and farming 600 or 350 acres last year, we'll see how many I get this year. Of soybeans at the same time, I'd say, well, that's my dream, but you're full of shit. There's no way. And somehow the cards have been dealt and I've stumbled through it. And I mean, it wouldn't be possible without my grandfather, Frank Michener, without, you know, his guidance, support and um, just, you know, leading me in the right direction my whole life. I wouldn't be here today. And um, I had so many mentors that played, you know, huge parts of my life, whether they be people in Mississippi and the Delta on the farm, the Flots or the Wagners or whether it be lawyers like Gibby Andrew or like the people in Clarksville, Mississippi, you know, Charlie Merkel and John Cock, um, always supporting me. And, you know, I'm just, I'm blessed. It takes a village to raise an idiot. And uh, Lord knows I've got a village. So on the music side of stuff, it's, it's, you, you outlined earlier kind of how you got into it with your first band. And I remember I met you senior year of high school and I could tell pretty quickly you're a sharp dude. And then as I kind of watched from afar on the music side of stuff, it seems like you're a person that picks up on things quickly. And I guess we'll go back to lying to uh, our guys, Will and Sam, that you knew how to play the drums at that point. Did you have any sort of musical background? Could you play any instruments? Like when you say you lied and learned how to play the drums, were you quite literally starting from scratch? What did you have to go off of at all at that point? Well, so my dad, um, well, I'll start my great grandmother, um, Ruth Watson, which you see where the name came from. She was the piano player for her church in North Mississippi and then in Memphis. And she had an ear. Um, She could hear anything and she could play it. And then my dad uh, was classically trained his whole life. He can read music and he also has the ear where if you can hum it and you can sing it, he can play it. And when I was a little boy, I sat down at the piano beside my dad and started playing this little tune. And he was like, well, wow, Watson, look, you're playing in the key of E minor. And he was like, but if you move down two steps, this is D major and started showing me how all the scales and the keys work. And my mind was blown. I was like, holy shit, it makes sense. Cause you know, you've only yeah. got, eight options in a key of what fits you know it either is in or is out and if you can hear it immediately if it sounds right and so I just kept playing the piano always playing the piano in high school at my house but never professionally or anything like that I think I had a few lessons in elementary school with this lady Miss Peggy Davis in um, Clarksdale but she would fart all the time sitting right beside you on the piano bench and finally, after her farting on me so many times, I just said, Mama, I'm not going back to that lady and getting farted on. And so she let me quit taking lessons, which I regret because I can't read a fucking lick of music. But luckily, genetically, I had that ear to be able to hear something and play it. And then when I went to Woodbury Forest Boarding School in the ninth grade, my mother was uh, adamant that I get a male teacher that was really good. And I had this guy named Wells Hanley. Um, and he learned really quickly that it was a waste of time to try to teach me how to read music. And instead, we just jumped headfirst into music theory, and chords and what fits and different styles and progressions. 
and I only went to Woodbury a year. Um, it was an all-boys school in rural Virginia. I had uh, 1,800 rushing yards and uh, 18 touchdowns and didn't kiss a single girl, and I told my mama I got to come home. And she let me go back to Pillow Academy where I graduated as a Pillow Gorilla, and um, and that's how I got back, but I really didn't do any more music at all in high school, which I regret because I'd be a lot better if I'd stuck with it. And then in college, I met Will and Sam and lied to him about the drums and learned the drums. And then when I was in New York, taught myself how to play guitar. And Will Smith, of course, gave me a lot of instruction on guitar, just like kind of how my dad and Wells Hanley did about scales and theory and what fits where and what doesn't. And then just having them in my corner and Will can absolutely rip. I can't play solo lead to save my life, but I can play a lot of shapes and a lot of rhythm. And Will just, you know, he puts the fire on top of it and, and makes that rock and roll sound just absolutely go. And how, that's really. I was just going to ask, how long did it actually take you to learn how to play the drums? Like realistically, like uh, how long? We had that first show in seven days. And I remember Will was like, Watson, don't even try to do the kick drums. <laughs> <laughs> so I just played the hat and the snare and a couple fills and on the ride. And um, and then as we played more and more, I got more and more confident. And then I got a drum lesson by a guy named Jonathan Peters, who a lot of your listeners might know. He was a big time bartender at the round table and his band was called Riverside Voodoo. And we played a lot of shows with him in college. And Peters is left handed. And I begged him for a drum lesson and he had two kits. And so we put the two kits beside each other. And since he's left handed and I'm right handed, we're literally looking at each other like a mirror. And Peters told me something that was extremely profound. He said, Watson, when you're playing the drums, you only have three options. You're either in front of the beat, you're on top of the beat or you're behind the beat. And he went through and showed me the dynamics of all three of those. And I was like, holy shit, it makes sense. And then he taught me how to roll my ankle and do the double, you know, the kick and off time and the the ghost beat and all of that. And then once he told me that, it was you know off to the races. I could I could I could rip the drums. So you guys start Delta Springs. Y'all played a lot of shows in Oxford and around the Southeast throughout college. I went to a couple of them. And you guys, look, I think a lot of people listening out there probably they all had that college band. My parents have one. I think it's called the White Animals that they had one that they still kind of play every now and again, and they'll go see them at the Lyric, and that was kind of their college band. And that's really what you guys were for us as well. And you went on to, you know, obviously expand that, but for, as you're learning how to play the drums, was there ever a point where you got, I don't say nervous, but like, can I actually do this in a band in front of people publicly? Cause like, look, you're at a show. It's a college band. Like everyone's having a good time. So they're going to like boo you off the stage or anything like that. But did, was <laughs> it ever like nerve wracking at all to actually do that in front of people as you were still learning how to do it? Well, you know, the drums is probably the most important instrument in the band because that's your heartbeat. That's your rhythm section. And if the drums are off, the whole song's going to fall apart. So there's a lot of pressure. And um, I remember when we played our first show at Proud Ladies, which is one of my favorite venues of all time. Um, I was nervous as shit. <laughs> but then the second you get up there and you hit that first crash and you start going, there's no looking back. Um, right. And I just locked in with Patrick Mink, who's an unbelievable bass player, and we just held down the rhythm, and I just paid attention to myself. And it's not like where you have to remember lyrics or chords or really, you know, sell the show. And I would just go absolutely berserk back there. And about halfway through, you know, the shirt would come off and get all sweaty. And and then, you know, I just – I loved being the energy to the band more so than having to be the front man or the musical uh, – the creative force behind it. But, 
you didn't have to sing or like write the songs. I just I just went as hard as I could and tried to stay in time as best as I could. And if you realize you only got three options on front of the beat, behind the beat, and on top of the beat, you really can't fuck up. So, um, yeah. You mentioned that the 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 kind of like I can't read music for shit, but I know like the theory aspect of it. And I kind of related to that in some ways where like, as I, I, I was not a journalism major, I didn't start, like, I kind of taught myself how to write. And then I'd get into these classes. I picked up journalism as a minor later on. And like, I learned like the basics of like how you write a news story and all that, but that I wouldn't say that ever like equipped me with any sort of skill set to kind of do what I do today. I really just kind of read other people and learned on my own. It's like, I know I'm not doing this the mechanical practical way that you're like supposed to think about it, but I know how to do it and it just works. So I'm going to keep doing it that way. And like, like for drums, is there like a book of music like you would read on a piano or something like that? Or is it pretty much all theory? Like, did that suit you better? Or you, is there a book available to read drum music and you're still going off theory, if that makes any sense? Yeah, I mean, there are tabs like and I don't even know the first thing. And, you know, you got quarter notes, half notes, full notes, all that. And it, the drum tabs look like a tiny bunch of little lines. And right. I don't know how to read that. But, you know, with drums, you got rhythm, you got. 4-4, which is what 95% of all pop songs are in there. 4-4, 1-2-3-4, 1-2-3-4, 1-2-3-4. Then you got 3-4, which like, for example, um, the Black Sabbath song, uh, what is it? Uh, Devils in the Masses. Yeah. That is in, the intro in that, for example, is in 3-4, which is uh, 1-2-3-1-2-3-1-2-3 and it's just it's a different time signature but I mean that's all feel you don't have to be able to read music to be able to feel it and understand it and put yourself in the right place and Rippy I gotta give it to you as far as your writing man like maybe you don't have the technical know-how but buddy you have a voice and like when you that. read your stuff I can literally hear your accent and your voice and the cadence of how quickly you talk and how fast your mind is just on rapid fire machine gun and it's just it's so pleasing to the reader to process that versus something that's drab and that's formed and that is perfectly mechanical. And I think that's what puts you in a class of your own. And is the reason why you've been as successful as you are. It's not because you're trained from day one to do it. It's because you got the knack, you got the feel and I got to give it to you. I'm super proud of you, man. I appreciate that, man. And likewise, and that's why I'm so kind of fascinated by your journey and your story and all of that. And so as you, as you go through it with Delta Springs you know, you mentioned you go to New York and you're working on skyscrapers. You you said that sounded cool. As someone who's deathly afraid of heights, I actually just kind of quivered in my chair a bit. But hey, if, if you like being up that high, more power to you. I'd probably just spend the whole time pissing my pants. But you go work on that. You go back to law school. Kind of take me through your musical progression through those years because you clearly learned how to play other instruments. Kind of take me to what brought you to where you're at today. What happened next? Well, like I said, my family's house in Sumner, it was built in 1913 by my great-grandfather, designed by an um, architect out of Memphis named M.M. Woods. And uh, the house burned down in, in 2017. I was in New York, and I was on top of a skyscraper, either soldering or welding something or doing something. And um, I get a phone call from my grandfather, and he said, Watsi Hoparka, which is the name of our house and the farm, which is an Indian word that means good earth. He said, uh, Hoparka's burned to the ground. And he said, and we can't find Lily, my dog. And I leaned over that uh, skyscraper on 46 and 6th Avenue in Midtown, and I vomited 600 feet to the ground. And I still, to this day, hope it didn't catch a pedestrian on the head. 
but it just absolutely smoked me. And, you know, that, I guess the silver lining of that is that I lost my piano and my drums. And so I took some of my savings and went to uh, Rivington Street in the East Village and bought a 1969 K American made guitar and just an old Sears and Roebuck Silvertone amp. And in me and my older brother's apartment, just played four chord punk rock until I could, you know, actually start making other shapes other than minors and majors. And wow. And, and then having the guitar is what led me to start writing songs because I could play guitar and sing at the same time. And I remember I would tell all these girls I was a musician and my older brother's like, Watson, you can't tell these girls you're a musician unless you have music. And I was like, well, fuck you, Mitchner. But honestly, that was some of the best advice he ever gave me. And it led me to go play an open mic night at the Sidewalk Cafe in the East Village on Avenue A and like 6th Street. And I remember I played uh, Demon, that same song, and I got a big cheer and I was like, wow, well, maybe maybe this this will do. And then um, another funny story, I was in New York walking home from um, from the job site and I had all my construction clothes on. And get that Coors Light, baby. I love it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I had all my construction clothes on and was dirty. And they had a piano in the East Village during the spring. It was a beautiful day. And I sat down and started playing it. And when I got done playing, I turned around and there were like 15 people videoing me. And some old lady gave me like a $10 bill. And I got up and I called my mom. And I said, Mama, you're not going to believe this. But I was just playing the piano in the park. And I turned around and people were videoing me. And this lady gave me $10. And she said, well, what are you doing, honey? Go back to that piano. <laughs> and, uh, Anyway, and so after I went back to law school, I uh, would play guitar with Will a lot and really develop the songs. And I just had those three songs. And when I went to Cambridge, it was just total serendipity that I'm getting a wet shave stoned. And the guy sent me to a studio in Grandchester about 10 minutes outside of Cambridge. Um, and we made that record and it was so successful. And that just that absolutely fundamentally changed my life. I mean, without that happening, you wouldn't have Watson. You wouldn't have these songs. You wouldn't have me recording in L.A. and Nashville and New Orleans and working at a trombone shorty studio and working with Paulie and getting to become really good friends with Aurelian and Jelani Bowman. And and uh, I got Kevin Scott, who plays with Tedeschi Trucks and a bunch of bands. He recorded bass on some of this record and. Donald McGee plays drums with me and he, uh, his dad's a big preacher and he plays a lot of gospel and with all kinds of bands. See all these new Orleans artists, you know, they, they're full-time musicians. They're not a lawyer and a farmer. So they're playing, you know, a minimum of five to seven shows a week, going, going, going. And, and I've just been so blessed to have them around me. And, you know, Aurelian went to Tulane and did international studies. So when we're together, like, we hardly ever talk about music. We're always talking about global politics. And, like, I just, I'm so happy to have these people in my corner. And, you know, Jelani, he plays trumpet with me, too. And um, he is unbelievable. He's an old soul. Um, he lived in Brooklyn for a while and hung out with Miles Davis and all of the, the jazz greats of uh, the 20th century. And his grandfather... Uh, I think his name was something Akil Bowman, maybe. And after slavery ended, after the Civil War, he was one of the first musicians to start teaching slaves um, how to play music. And he taught them all about syncopation and timing the drums and the horns and all this stuff together, which 
really kind of led to the modern jazz we have today. And now I have Jelani. And like on one of my tracks on the new record, it's called Phantom. And this is kind of a long story, but my friend Taylor Fields was staying with me. And there's a, a sidewalk library outside our house in New Orleans where you can just go. You grab a book and you put a book in. And he grabbed this book of poetry and he left it on my piano. And I opened it one day and it was this Wordsworth poem called Phantom of Delight and about his wife that I thought was so incredible. And I had this unbelievably R&B sounding uh line on the piano that I just obsessed with in the key of D. I still play it all the time when I sit down and didn't have any lyrics. And so I just took that poem and put that as the lyrics. And then when we went in the studio, I brought Jelani and I said, Jelani, I want you to make this sound like you're walking through Paris in the rain. And by damn, if that's not exactly what the horn line sounds like, like it's, it's unbelievable. I'll play you just the very beginning and tell me that this doesn't sound like you're walking through Paris in the rain. Yeah, you so, can almost like hear the rain. <laughs> like it really do it. does, but that's the feel aspect you talk about, right? Like you couldn't totally. pull that out of a book when you tell him to do that. That's him, like just. I mean, yeah, like you said, you have to have the ear, you have to have the vision for it. That's pretty much all feel, right? I mean, that's not something you're getting out of a book. You have to have that talent and that knack for that, is it not? Yeah, well, Jelani's a composer. He uh, he's playing a show on February the fourth at the Brooklyn Museum of Jazz, a live record of all of his compositions. And so Jelani, you could have grabbed a piece of sheet music and charted that out. But no, I said, make it sound like Paris in the Rain. He said, he said, word, walked into the booth and <laughs> fucking smoked it. And I'm sitting in there just like tears coming down my face. Like, how did he just do this? Because I don't have that ability. I couldn't, can't sit down at the piano and, and pull that out of my ass. But he did. And that's what's like so cool and important about music is collaboration and surrounding yourself with people that are better than you. And like the way I describe my songwriting process is I come up with a four chord little melody and a little bridge and a turnaround. And I call that laying the pasture. And then I bring in these thoroughbred horses like Will Smith and Jelani and uh, Kevin Scott and, um, and Aurelian. And I'll just say, let these horses gallop. And I don't ever stop them in the studio. Like, we can always come back and edit, but I've never uh, interrupt their creative process. And I just have a lot of trust in the people that I surround myself with to know that the finished product is going to be so much better than if I were controlling over the process. And I think while maybe in the studio when they're like, come on, you're the front man. You got to be telling me what to do and make the decision. I'm like, no, you're the talent. You fucking figure it out. Right. Rather than that being a weak thing or a sign of weakness, I really think it's what's led this new record that's going to be it's it's going to be really good um i think the aspect of you learning how to play guitar kind of really rooted in tragedy of like hey i just like you know like you lost your drum set you lost your piano in a fire and you picked up a guitar and you taught it is very cool but at the same time when you say taught yourself how to play guitar how does that actually work like is it like a dude trying to get better at golf or he just youtube stuff <laughs> like how, when you teach yourself how to play guitar what does that actually mean how did you do it well, when I was playing drums, I, you know, I've got six guitars around me all the time with Will and Sam and Patty, and I pick them up, and I'm like, how do I do an E? How do I do an A? How do I do a G? How do I do a B? And so they started teaching me the shapes, and then Patty went to Jackson Prep. He didn't play football. He was in the band, so he knows all kinds of theory, and Patty was like, well, look, 
what you're doing is the A shape of everything or the E shape. And he was like, actually, you know, you can do the D shape or the F shape or the C shape. And then as I learned all those shapes, um, that's just really what opened up the whole, the whole neck of the guitar versus being stuck in the bottom three frets. And that changed everything for me. And then on this new record, um, I don't play guitar once on it. You know, um, I've got Matt Simpson, Lake Wilkinson, Gus uh, Barnett, Nate Rocco, Bill Daniels, Paul Shane. Those are that's six different guys that play guitar on that. And all I'm playing is a Fender Rhodes or a Wurlitzer playing the keys. And when I was recording my song Happy Boy, which I've got a new video single coming out on Thursday for that. We recorded the video in New Orleans and I got some B-side footage over here in Africa that'll be on it. Um uh I, you know, I wanted to to really be all over the keyboard playing it and Kevin Scott was like no cut all that flowery shit out and make it all MB and Motown and so I'm just playing just simple chords in the key of C and damn it sounds so good um and that's I'm really happy to done the whole turnaround to go from learning piano as a little boy to learning drums in college to learning guitar after graduating college to now I pretty much write everything and the majority of my stuff is on piano unless when we're playing the my old records, of course, I'll pull out that guitar and jump around. That is wild. And so when you go, you finish up law school, you're trying to figure out kind of what you want to do. And then the music aspect of it, what led you to become like what you are today with Watson and being a musician and a professional musician that has a Spotify and all of that? What led you to say, OK, I'm going to do this? How did that work? I mean, I think if you can think it, if you can believe it, you can make it happen. I think the hardest hump getting over is the imagination and then selling yourself out to to doing the damn thing. And it takes a little bit of uh, fearlessness and you have to accept the possibility of failure. And that is um, that thwarts a lot of people from pursuing things that they dream Amen. of, that they, that they think, you know, maybe I'm going to fail and people are going to talk badly about me and I remember when Simple Syrup came out, Jake Williams, a little preppy, you know, oh, yeah. Jake, uh, he came up to me and he's like, man, he's like, I just couldn't believe how good it was. He was like, when I saw you were putting this out, he's like, I thought it was going to be terrible. And I was like, well, well thanks a lot, Jake. <laughs> Quite glad. the compliment there. Not backhanded at all. Very much like that young man. Um, and so, you know, I think the bigger the hurdle, the bigger the balls and the bigger the reward. And sometimes, you know, I'm definitely super risk seeking and not risk averse in that sense. And maybe that has a lot to do with my genetics and my family. Um, and kind of the same thing, you know, deciding that I wanted to start farming. My grandfather was a farmer from the 1950s to 2001 when he retired. And he was the head of the United States Cotton Council. And he was the youngest ever president of the Delta Council. And there I think go. he's the oldest surviving president of both of them. He's 89 now. And he's really my hero. And I grew up, you know, I'd wake up from my nap and it was like clockwork. Pop Frank would be in the front yard in his old uh, Chevy Tahoe that was dirt brown. And I'd run out and hop in the uh, Tahoe with him. And I'd get on the radio. I'd say, come in, Willie Moe. <laughs> Willie Moore was one of his, uh, he was his heavy equipment operator that operated all the excavators, the track hose, the back hose, the big track machine. So I was in obsessed with Willie Moore because I wanted to be on the biggest machine always. And I would go sit. Willie Moore was like six foot seven. I would go sit on his knee from the end of my nap until it was time to go home for dinner and just ride whatever machine he was on. And I just was obsessed with farming and heavy machinery. 
I got that song Willie Moore off my second record, Four Felonies Before Noon, that we live tracked out in Los Angeles with uh, Hey Rocco. Did that in like four hours. I love that record. It's super punk rock, but it's awesome. And that song says, Oh, Willie Moe. Uh, standing six foot foe told me all that I know. I had a blonde afro riding down them long rows. And, you know, most of my songs are written about a person. You know, Sophia is about Sophie Clay, my best friend from childhood. We're six days apart. Um, Willie Moore, obviously, about Willie Moore. Um, uh, my song 22 is about the time I ran into Alexa Chung at a bar in New York, and I was just blown away by how beautiful she was. And I wanted to take her out, and she said, Well, darling, you're just 22. And um, and like Dear Margo, my most recent video single, my best friend Houston Primos had a baby. And it's when we were over here in June and we were wrapping up the trip. And I took uh, a three day trip to Zanzibar to rest and kind of decompress from hearing all these terribly depressing stories for two and a half weeks. And Houston sent me a picture of him holding his baby Margo that was just born. I just thought to myself, you know, if I had to tell this newborn infant what the world is like and 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 what to expect what would I do and I sat out on the porch listening to the waves of the Indian Ocean roll in and wrote that thing in like 30 minutes and like my new single Happy Boy is about my friend Happy Davis whose father died a few years ago and he's got you know a brother and three sisters and instantly catapulted to being the head of the household and having to handle way more than 28 than most men should have to handle and and that's just kind of the the crux of the way I write music, I, I come up with a person or a story of an idea and just run with it. And so when you make that first record, right, Simple Syrup, and like, I was actually sort of similar, I wouldn't say I was exactly the Jake Williams camp, as much as I joked <laughs> earlier, of like, oh, wow, this is surprisingly good. I just didn't know much about it. I knew, obviously, you were doing Delta Springs, and then when that came out, I was like, wow, this is really damn good. And I wasn't like surprised by it by any imagination. But if you can get someone like me, who I would say is a novice from like a musical ear standpoint i like music i'm not like super into it in terms of like following a ton of bands and stuff but i was like wow and then if you can get someone like me to play that in the car obviously that's like that's who you're trying after right like it's not necessarily the dollars it's kind of trying to get new people into what you're doing when you made that that had to be a gigantic confidence boost where you put that out there it's a real professional record there's a difference between i imagine being a musician and actually putting something professional together you mentioned when that came together that kind of changed everything for you i imagine part of that was a gigantic confidence boost that like oh i can do this like we we did do this I was nervous as shit that, you know, it wouldn't have more than a hundred listens on Spotify and it would just be embarrassing. And, and it, it, it hit, it did it, you know? And Isn't there a certain part of that though, about the fear? Cause that you, that struck me earlier. Well, I started this podcast on the side once I got into marketing and I had every excuse, made every excuse not to. And I was like, Oh, ultimately I got to the point. It's like, if no one listens, who gives a shit? I like doing it. What does it matter? Like, did you kind of have that, some of that same feeling? Like ultimately who cares if it doesn't work? I mean, I think art should stand on its own and you should care more about the art and the product than the commercial success and value of it. And that should be your leading factor that you want to make music that you like. But once you get that first little taste of success and you realize oh, yeah. how formulaic it is, um, it's hard to turn back um and and not continue to write what you know and think will be hits and that will get traction and will get spins and um you know i stick with a lot of simple rules the petty rule don't bore us give us the chorus you know i'm not going to give you a five minute instrumental before you hear anything um i try to keep it simple um 
keep it simple, stupid, and then just like trust your ear. And then like the whole goal is to write hooks, hooks on hooks on hooks. You want things that are just literally going to get stuck in people's head, whether if it's a trumpet line, whether if it's the melody, the way you sing it, whether if it's uh, a guitar solo, like you, you just, I want to just pump out hooks. And so when I write something on the piano or the guitar or just sing something the right way that I know is catchy, I record it on my iPhone immediately because with creativity, you know, it comes in spurts. It's not just constantly um, just emanating out of you. There'll be a moment where you have an idea and a feeling and, and something. And, and when I get that, I'll leave the bar and go straight home and yeah. get down on that piano and, and nail it because I know it's not coming back and you can't do it later. And you got to get it. You got to strike while the iron's hot. And the second thing is like, you can't be a perfectionist. Um, so many of my friends that are way more talented than me musically are perfectionists and they'll sit on these records and these ideas for so long and they'll never put a damn thing out. And for me, I'm a much better producer and arranger than I am a musician. And I don't hesitate to put something out before it's perfect, which I regret on some projects. Like I would love to go back and redo Bubblegum Blues because those recordings are trash and we didn't put enough time into it but um but in general you got to trust your gut and like my favorite thing to stay in the say in the studio is that's it like when you get that take we're not going to go do it six more times to make it a decimal percentage better like that's it let's move on to the next and you kind of got to have that confidence and that flow to say we got it let's let's fucking move let's not harbor on this I know exactly what you mean, dude. I was writing the same way where it's like, yeah, it's like, hey, don't go back and try to screw this up again. And then also in that same moment where it's like when you have something, like do it now because you never know if it's coming back. But hey, when it's done, it's done. I mean, I look at stories I've wrote like five years ago. I'm like, yeah, that wasn't that great. I wish I'd done that differently. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be perfect in the moment. You kind of learn to get better as you go. And so as that first record comes out, you mentioned uh, Spotify put it on one of their playlists. It jumps from like 3K to 30K. Is that kind of what vaulted you into the opportunities you have now? Like, did you kind of see like, oh, okay, I can actually turn this into something. Was that a big launch pad for you? A hundred million percent. I mean, luckily um, I had a relationship with Scott Carradine and all and all the guys at Proud Larry's to get my first solo show there. And um, it was damn near sold out. My first ever show, it was just a packed house and I had written these songs, but I didn't have them arranged for a live performance. And I got together with my friend Andy Gwynn, who was in Young Buffalo, and now has his own project called Olympic Music. And he's an unbelievably talented multi-instrumentalist and an avid duck hunter, which is honestly how we became friends. Not music, but just because he wanted to come hunt on my grandfather's land. But Andy um, arranged all those songs for the live sets. And then I learned like how you do different intros and different outros and can segue into a cover and then pop out right back into the song and just like holy shit I never thought about any of this stuff and then that show was extremely successful and got like a lot of praise and so then reset people we knew in Nashville people we knew in New Orleans and uh New York and when I send my Spotify link and they see that I have you know between 25 and 30,000 monthly listeners back then. The monthly listeners are down now because I hadn't put anything out in so long. But at that time, it was extremely high. Then it's just like instant, like, yep, we'll take you. You're in the door. You're booked. And without the uh, Sophia getting put on the Spotify release radar, uh, I would have never had those opportunities to play those venues and eventually festivals and the things that I'm doing now. And so you have a new album coming out February 14th, or new record coming out February 14th uh, on 
and you have a tour coming up. Take me through like what that actually looks like. Like, how do you, what goes into booking a tour? Obviously you had gotten to the point where you had opportunities and people wanted to come have you play, but like, how does booking a tour and actually setting a schedule, how does all that work? Well, that's, it's a son of a bitch. Um, you <laughs> I know, imagine. if I could, with as busy as I am between practicing law and farming and trying to become a rock star. Um, if I could have someone to do the social media aspect and someone to do the booking, my life would be so easy. My dream would be to show up, plug my guitar and my keyboard in and go. And instead I have to do all of the administrative kind of parts of the music industry, which just involves emailing venues and um, trying to get in with other bands that already have tours that are planned, planned by uh record uh labels that have a whole AR staff that do all of that shit and that makes it really easy because then you just get put on on the date but otherwise it's just you're sending emails you're sending your your epk your electronic press kit that has all your links your photos your videos and um trying to say something clever in the email to catch their attention luckily my last name's turnip seed so they get that email they're like what the fuck and then <laughs> And then that's kind of a foot in the door in itself. But this tour coming up, we're playing um, a few festivals. We're playing at Hogs for the Cause on April the 1st on the big stage, opening up for St. Paul and the Broken Bones. And I'll have the whole brass section for that. So all your listeners, um, March 31st and April the 1st, Hogs for the Cause is an amazing festival. Um, it's a barbecue competition with two days of unbelievable music. And all of the proceeds go to pediatric cancer. And so... Um, if there were any calls to support for music and good food, that'd be one of them. And then, um, wait, Where is back that? on that's in New Orleans. It's out, uh, it's in Lakefront, um, right on Lake Pontchartrain inside the levee. Awesome. Um, it's fantastic. And, um, I got 10 free tickets. I'll give you one, Brian Scott. Come on, you can stay with me. Absolutely. You know, I'm in. That's uh that's wild. And so like as far as like the tour, do you know like like I don't know if this is released yet? What can you tell us about the stops? Where else you're going? It's not released yet. It's still okay. very much in progress. I've sent multiple emails today confirming dates, moving dates. And then like for me, I don't have a set band. Like I've got a band in Nashville that I play with. I got a, my band in New Orleans that I play with. I've got the Hey Rocco guys in LA that I play with. So like depending on the set of shows, it it my band is constantly revolving and moving, which adds another layer to organization and teaching the stuff. And then also it's cool because you get like a different feel and a different sound with each different band, which is, is super fun. And um, usually I take Will Smith wherever I go because he's, you know, my little stack shot Willie. You got to let him rip it up. And oh, yeah. um, now that I got a really in and Jelani, you know. I'll pay whatever it takes to, to get those two to come on the road with me. So the horns will be there. I can guarantee you that. But um, we'll probably after this record, probably two or three weeks after that's, you know, I'm playing a bunch of Mardi Gras shows in New Orleans, some house parties and some other ones. And um, after that, we'll really kind of have the set down and have it figured out. And then we'll release the, uh, the tour dates between late February and late April. One of the things I think is really cool about your songwriting process, and you alluded to this earlier, is it's always a, it's a lot of it's about people that you know and stories that you know, rather from happy, as you mentioned earlier, to Truett Primos to Dear Margot, which I actually read an article that you were talking about how it was actually from uh, Houston Primos' daughter and like what you would like te tell an infant about the world. What have, 
what have you kind of learned? How did you get into the songwriting process? What, like what sparked that and how, what have you kind of learned about songwriting? I love people. Um, I'm a people person. I'm obsessed with history. I'm obsessed with stories. I'm obsessed with vernacular. Um, and I think it's important to, to hold on to that and be like a sponge when you're around a great storyteller and somebody. And most stories are about people. And it's super easy to write about a person versus like a vague idea of happiness. Um, of course, love and heartbreak are probably two of the most explored categories of songwriting. And that's kind of easy, but I try to steer clear of that because it gets cheesy. And yeah. um, and I, I just, I love people and, and I like putting a different light on it the way I perceive it. And, and it's easy. And I think a lot of songwriters get caught up in like, you know, having to have a rhyme structure, A, B, A, B, and all this stuff. And when you're just telling a story, you can make words fit however you want versus trying to write a poem. And then sometimes, Brian Scott, I'll have an idea and I'll pull out my voice recorder on my phone and grab a guitar and the song will be done in literally like two takes. And then other ones, you know, I'll marinate on and saturate and then it'll take three months before the hook and the right lyrics come. And, you know, you just kind of got to take it as you get it. And um, and it's a beautiful process. And it's so cool. My favorite thing, I prefer being in the studio way over being on stage, because like I said, it's all about Watson and, narciss and it feels narcissistic when I've got these six other guys that are contributing the majority of the work. And it's all about me when it really should be about all of us. And so I hate that the band's called Watson, but it's too late now. Um, <laughs> and um, so it's super like moving to me when I go from listening to the first voice recording to the first demo to hearing the finished product. And then it's just like, holy shit, we just took an infant naked baby to a sexy full grown woman, you know? And, um, and like that's that. The songwriting side of it too, I can relate to that piece of it too. Is like again, someone who's a pretty novice when it comes to like listening to music and understanding that. I feel like I relate to songs more when I know what it's about. If it's about like a story that people can relate to, a person that could people relate to is a lot more uh compelling or it sticks with you to me a lot more than just an abstract idea. And it sounds like you found yeah. that out pretty quickly. Yeah, that's that that method, that formula that I kind of spoke about earlier. Like you know, stick with your guns and it's working. And um, and I also like have an idea, like the idea behind Swamp Pop was Garrett Caver, bass player for, um, it used to be Hood Baby and the Barnacles, but they decided that that was not um, politically acceptable because it's four white guys. And um, they changed their name to Blue Talk, which I think is stupid, but that's not, uh, not my call. But Garrett um, is obsessed with D'Angelo. And, you know, I grew up riding to school with Monzella and Charles driving me 36 miles to school every day. And we would listen to 104.3 jamming in the Delta, which was all R&B. And um, when Garrett showed me D'Angelo, who is like me, he is a, he records his own bass, his own drums, his own vocals, his own guitar, which is what I did on that first record. Um, that just absolutely blew me away. And then just the feel of of the rhythm how it's constantly behind the beat and the bass tone and then his vocals and songwriting i was like i want to make a d'angelo record and that was the real momentum behind swap pop i had the songs and the ideas and the framework but then how do you make that sound 
and then you surround yourself with musicians way better than you that know how to do it. And, uh, and that's how Swamp Pop has come together the way it is. And, um, I'm super, super proud of this one. So even if it's not commercially successful, um, at the end of the day, the art will stand on its own and I'm going to be proud of it. And, you know, with doing all this stuff I'm doing, this record is really going to be the Richter scale to determine if I'm going to continue to pursue music professionally full time or three quarters time. If it's not successful and this tour is not successful and we don't get a ton of traction to make it worthwhile, then I can guarantee you I'll be farming more acres and have more cases. <laughs> so along those lines like we as uh, after all the kind of pockets of music and where you've learned things that we covered we just kind of glossed over the fact when did you learn you could sing how did you figure that piece of it out because like i imagine now that what you're doing now that'd be a little bit of a hang-up like you mean you could go other avenues like how'd you figure out you could sing well, I always knew I had a better voice than Sam in Dove Springs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, Sam. I love you. Lee, Lee Stevens is dad. If you're listening to this, please don't kick my ass. Um, <laughs> but uh, honestly, I mean, I had this, our little church has like 16 members. And I used to have to do on Christmas, sing a solo for Once in Royal David City. And I was a little soprano. My balls hadn't dropped yet. You know, Once in just way up there. And um, I was so embarrassed by it. And I remember my friend Chad Flaw giggling in the congregation while I was singing that. And that's, you know, that really scared me away from singing. And I, I dropped it after that. And that was, you know, probably fourth or fifth grade and um, didn't sing at all. And then, to be honest, that was easily the biggest hurdle to overcome in putting out Simple Syrup because I'd never recorded my own vocals. I never heard them back before. Um, I didn't. You know, it's scary. And I do not have the best voice in the world. I'm I don't have pipes like Whitney Houston. I don't have um I don't have some Marvin Gaye or Stevie Wonder just uh unbelievably enigmatic voice. But what I do have is a unique voice, which um it also shows a lot of vulnerability. And um I think to listeners that is kind of um calming, it doesn't scare them away and they're like, Whoa, this is different. I haven't heard anything like this. And once I learned that, um, I just quit being afraid of it and <clears throat> go in there and uh, pump it as hard as I can, try to sing from the belly, not from the throat, and uh, and get it right. And, you know, when you were in the studio recording, you can do 17 different takes of getting right. it. Um, and so, you know, with time and recording with Paulie, Paulie, my producer, he has perfect pitch. And I'll sing a melody and then he'll be like, no, this is how it should be. Da, da, da. And then you get it right. And uh, having people in your team like that. And then once you've heard your own self back singing it the correct way hundreds of times through being in the studio and getting ready to release it. Then once you go on stage, you know exactly what the what the pitch and key is and where you're supposed to go. And then it's just a matter of execution. For you, as you continue on this journey, one of the things that I'm sure you've thought about this, but one of the things that is very clear and evident in terms of like your story is like everything is kind of pockets and kind of a conglomeration of people you've met, friends that you have from your songs to the people that you work with and all of that. And we've talked a lot about kind of vulnerability and putting yourself out there and kind of the fear, fear of failure <clears throat> to the point where you kind of have to squash that and say, the hell with it. I'm going to do this. 
I imagine there's a confidence in the fact that it's 100% authentic. I mean, even in like the writing industry for like, you got columnists that just do the hot take stuff. And it's like, that's got a limited sample size because at a certain point, figure <laughs> out you're full of shit. But I imagine there has to be a confidence in that this is 100% you, pretty much your entire career is just this kind of conglomeration of your life and people you've met on the way. I imagine that has to add to your confidence and be comforting as you kind of con- continue on this thing, if that makes any sense at all. I mean, I don't like think about it like that. I ever want to like pat myself on the back and be like, you're the man. But um, I think it's important to be unapologetically yourself. And when I meet people, it's very evident pretty early on if they like me or don't like me. And I'm not going to let it hurt my feelings. And I'm not going to harbor any emotion to that. We're going to move on dot org. And the people that do like me, you know, it's it's very quick that we kind of link minds and souls and get on the same page and um I love people and um, I like to surround surround myself people with people that are two things. One is genuine. I don't want any fluff or bullshit. All I want is the true you. And then two, I want is loyal. I'm never going to surround myself with someone that's going to talk behind my back in a negative way because I don't have time to deal with that backlash and negative feeling. And so I'm not going to be around or close with fake people that talk shit, that'll say how wonderful you are and how much they love you to your face and then go behind your back and trash you. I'm just, I refuse to re- surround myself with fake people. And then secondly, you know, Yo-Yo Ma said the uh, two questions that all humans ask are who am I and what's my place in the universe? And I have been incredibly blessed to know from a young age that I wanted to farm. And my grandfather told me that I had to have something to do in the winter. So he always encouraged me to go to law school. And I went on a whim and I uh, loved law school and learning the law and now practicing the law. And so I have a very firm grip on what my place in the universe is. And like I went to law school because I wanted to help the state of Mississippi. I want to be able to reform the education system, particularly in the Mississippi Delta, where it's so poor. And I want to be able to help expand healthcare because we've just got hospital after hospital dissolving. And and not only do we have a, a food desert, but we have a, a healthcare desert. And um, being a lawyer and being able to file a lawsuit, you get a lot of power to be able to affect those things. And so I just think as life is going on and knowing who I am and who I want to surround myself with and what my goals are to affect the world, I don't have to waste time asking myself, what do I want to do? And instead, I can just go do it. And um, that unabridged ambition and just, um, you know, fearless energy uh has luckily followed my feet has led me to some good places amen to that dude that's well said that's you kind of just covered it but i was going to ask you as you kind of wrap up here is like what like where do you see this in three to five years i know you talked about this kind of being a barometer to where you're going to do it part-time full-time are you just like enjoying the ride or are you just like like where do you see all of this in five years are you an attorney who does music are you a musician who does a little bit of law like how do you kind of see where this goes from here or are you just kind of seeing where it goes well, see, we're living in a time that is brand new with social media and the Internet. And so right. in the 60s, if you wanted to be a successful rock band, you had to get a van or a bus and go play like at least 230 nights a year to get your music out to everyone. And the beauty of 2023 is that I can put up a video and if it's good enough and people like it enough, they're going to share it. And all of a sudden, it's got the potential for millions of people to see it. And so that limits the amount of time I have to spend on the road touring. 
and like I said, I really don't like touring. It's soul sucking. I drink too much. I don't sleep enough. Um, smoke too many cigarettes. It's just, it's not my favorite part of the process. And so honestly, if this record explodes and is extremely successful, my goal would be to play 10 to 20 sold out theater shows a year and sell them out every single time and make it a big event and don't oversaturate the amount of times I play to keep people interested. And then that'll still give me the time that I want to focus on law and, um, and farming. And so truthfully, that, that would be the, um, the goal. And so uh, that just made me think of another thing, this dear Margo's you have coming out. I read that like you guys made a video on an Island. It used a seaplane. How in the world did you figure out how to make a cool video? Do you know how to fly too? If the answer is yes, like what the <laughs> hell can you not do? How did you get a seaplane? What, like what, what comes together making a video? How does that work? So my mentor in new Orleans, Gibby Andrew, who's like, he's my mentor. And like, honestly, he's become one of my best friends. I, I adore him. Um, he is a super enigmatic person and super headstrong. And he started flying seaplanes in the 90s. And he's made enough money to where he's got a seaplane and a bigger six-seater that we fly to depositions and stuff. And living in New Orleans and on the Gulf Coast, uh, fishing is one of the biggest things down there. And instead of taking a boat ride for four and a half hours across choppy waves, Gibby's badass just takes off on the seaplane, southern seaplanes, and flies down and we sight fish. He calls it fly fishing. We go find big schools of redfish and then we'll go land down by them and get out with waders and um, catch uh, reds that way out of the seaplane. And I knew I wanted to do that music video. I've been wanting to shoot a music video with Evie Williams, the model in it, since I made Simple Syrup and we couldn't make it happen on Simple Syrup. I wanted to use her, my music video for my song Mama, but it didn't work out. And so when we were getting ready to do this, I had no hesitation of who I was going to call. And um, I got Wood Simmons, our friend Luke Simmons, his older brother, who has been um, in art direction in Los Angeles and Nashville and Atlanta his whole career. And he's just unbelievably talented and convinced him to come down and shoot for two days. And then I had been telling Gibby for months, like, we're going to do this music video in the seaplane. We're going to go to Breton Island. We're going to land it. It's going to be sick. And then we get to the time and Gibby's like, fuck, I don't want to do it. And then we go and check the weather report. And of course, it literally couldn't be better conditions for flying. And Gibby was like, fuck, here we go. And so we drove out there to Southern Seaplanes and took off. And um, after um, after getting down there, Gibby gets out in his waders and pulls out his fishing rod and starts catching redfish while we're on Breton Island shooting this video. And then while we were leaving Breton Island to take off coming back, um, the wind had picked up and so had the surf. And as we're coming to take off, um, all the waves are hitting on the starboard side. It's just, when I was like, oh my God, my little butthole got so tight. I was like, this is it. And he goes to pop up the first time and we go straight back down to ground effect and hit back on the water. And I was like, yep, this is it. We are dying. And I look in front of me and Evie's in the front seat and she's just giggling like a little girl in a candy store. And, um, and then Gibby sees a big wave and he hits it and drops the rudder and launches off of it. And voila, we made it back safely to New Orleans in 30 minutes. Thank goodness. But yeah, Gibby and I, he goes and flies every Sunday and I take every opportunity I can to go fly with him because like flying over the Gulf in the seaplane is so cool to see Louisiana and Mississippi in from that perspective. And then to hear him talk about how the marsh line has changed over the years with all the hurricanes 
um, it's just, it's really moving and beautiful and peaceful and, um, it's, it's fucking sick. That is amazing, dude. What a wild story. I'm so proud of you. I really can't thank you enough for doing this. Check him out. It's I am Watson. He's on Spotify. You've got the new record coming out February 14th. Be sure to check that out. I can't recommend it enough. My recommendation probably shouldn't pull a lot of weight because I'm about as musically as little as possible. But I promise you, if you go click on it, you will find yourself an hour later still listening to it, dude. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I've been wanting to do it for a while. I'm very, very proud of you. It's been incredible to learn even more about this, even in just the hour that we've been doing this, but I cannot thank you enough. Dude, Rippy, I can't thank you enough. And I'm super proud of you and a big fan and follow it. And your voice is is pleasing to the ear. Listen to you talk and and give your opinions. It's uh it's Watson all caps. Not my Instagram is I am Watson Music, but um the music can be found on YouTube, iTunes, Amazon, Pandora, Deezer, Title. Uh, if it streams it, it's on there and it's Watson all caps. Um, it'd be easy to find if you typed in Watson all caps with simple syrup, which is the name of the first record we did in Cambridge, England or swamp pop pop after February the 14th, which will be this first full length. So y'all, uh, check it out. And uh, I hope it makes you jump and boogie. We'll do this again sometime soon, my man. I appreciate it. You're the king. We'll talk soon. Take care. And that was Watson Turnipseed. Again, really appreciate his time. I enjoyed the hell out of that uh, podcast. I enjoyed talking to Watson, learning stuff about his story that I didn't even really know. Really appreciate his time and uh, glad to see he's doing well. Super proud of him. And uh, can't wait to see where it goes from there. Be sure to check out all the tour stops and all of his music as well. We'll be back at it on Friday. We got Mark Etheridge of D1 Baseball hopping on to talk a little bit of Ole Miss, but a lot of SEC and some of the new ventures that D1 Baseball has with their SEC extra package that they launched this year so stay tuned for that we got one more show for you this week thanks for tuning in as always and we'll catch you on friday